Maria Hinojosa has built an extraordinary career in broadcast journalism over three decades. She's an Emmy Award winner who hosts the national public radio show Latino USA and owns her own media company. And in her new book, Once I Was You, a memoir of love and hate in a torn America, she paints a striking picture of the ways we view, quote, outsiders. The book puts America's contradictions and unmet ideals on full display. On this episode of Created Equal, my conversation with Maria Hinojosa. It was founded on the principle, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. All men are created equal. Let's start here. Near the beginning of your book, you recall you, your mother, and your siblings coming into America for the first time. An immigration agent tells your mom that you have a rash that looks like it might be German measles. He tells your mother that she and your siblings can come into the country, but they would have to, quote, keep you. Your mother stands up to the agent who backs down, but you say you thought your entire life that it had to be a mistake until you wrote this book and learned that there was a room full of children and babies who had been separated from their families. Talk about what would have happened to you if your mom had not stood up to that border agent. Well, that that's that's starting <laughs> getting right to it. <laughs> you should have you should have done like a little trigger warning, actually, because you know, wow, even hearing you describe it, I'm like, God, that was really yes. Oh my God, and I think I think one of the hard things was about uh, about it, Stephen, is that it, it was when my mom was in her 80th decade, and I in my fifth decade, that it all kind of comes pouring out. And it was like, oh, wait, 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 what happened? Mm -hmm. You know, because this is a way in which we, the stories that we are ashamed of, that we're traumatized by, that we don't want to remember, that we really want to forget, that we can't believe happened. You know, they, we have a way of doing this, right? I mean, we're human beings and we become compartmentalized, we change the story. And so the way I had kind of come to hear the story once I heard it, which was already in my 30s, was that, you know, basically my mom this petite, you know, five-foot woman with four kids under the age of seven stands up to this immigration agent in Dallas. And it was, yeah, like, I was like, well, that's so, man, what was wrong with that guy? Like, what was, he must have had a bad day. Like, what a weird fluke. What, how strange that he would do that, you know, but also not really focusing on him. I was focusing on my mom having a big mouth and, and screaming to the top of her lungs that, you know, that she was going to keep me. It was when my mom heard the the cries of the babies and the toddlers oh and the children. Oh you know, I'm trigger warning right there. We remember hearing them. It was a story broken by ProPublica. They got the audio, which, by the way, those children in those cages exist today, and they are crying right now. I mean, I don't have the tape, but I, right. they're still there, right? So please, let's realize that this hasn't It's stopped. It's amazing it's, to think of your mother so long after experiencing that listening to that report now and and just the way that it would it would strike her the way it would strike her heart to hear well, other children separated from their families at the border yeah no no um, we were in Dallas actually by plane with privilege and green cards you know my dad was a medical doctor uh, dedicated to research at the University of Chicago mm -hmm. so 
we were not rich, but we had privilege at that moment, and still. Um, and that was that. That I think was really hard for me, uh, Stephen. When it was, you know, my mom already in her eighties, when she's like, "Oh my God, this could have been me. This mm-hmm. could have been you. They, you know, they could have taken you." And that's a big part of what I'm trying to say with this book. And I, I'm thinking very, very um, clearly about my experience in Detroit almost a year ago when we were together, mm-hmm. and I met people, Stephen, Mexican families. Uh, so I'm talking like a hundred-year-old, century-old uh, Mexican families from Detroit and outside areas who were recalling their family members being deported in the 1930s from Detroit. So family separation has been a part of you know this country's history for a long time, and it began with indigenous children being taken, and it continued with children born into slavery being taken. So we need to realize that this continues and we are, we are all touched by it. Yes, yes. And that's a great framing, I think, for the, the book generally, that uh, really what you're highlighting here, really what you're calling out are those hypocrisies or those failings of America. And when I say America, I don't just mean the country as it exists and the government that runs it, but talking about that ideal that we all, I think, uh, would like for America to be able to deliver on, that it, it doesn't come true for so many people. And your story, along with so many others, is the proof that we just have so much work still to do to make this country what it claims to be. As immigrants, we do, in fact, have this expectation about this country, right? And, um, and, and I think all of us then, we buy into this, you know, we're the world's greatest democracy. And here's the thing, we are as long as we're all active in it. Mm. You know, that's, and, and I, frankly, I love, I just love shouting out, one, the Midwest, in general, to the state of Michigan, three specifically Detroit, <laughs> because y'all, y'all, y'all went to the polls. That is another form of democracy. It is another form of saying we are present. And that I think is, I mean, you and I love this, right? Because we're democracy junkies. In the end, it comes down to, oh my God, we've had 400 and how many years of, in, you know, of, of fighting for black lives mattering in this country? Mm-hmm. So, este, you know, like 402 years now, right? So at this point, it, we don't give up, right? That we have to tell our stories, we have to write our books, we have to be on the radio, we have to use our voices, we have to encourage people who do not feel visible. We have to encourage them to, you know, I mean, I don't see anybody anymore. <laughs> I miss people, but... Whenever I was out, right now I'm in Connecticut. I'm, I'm relocated. It's my second, my third state, I guess now, Illinois, New York, and now Connecticut. And whenever I'd go to the supermarket, I'd be talking to everybody. I thought, are you going to vote? Are you going to vote? Are you going to vote? You know, and they're like, man, I'm like, yeah, you got to vote. That's what I do. That's part of living in a democracy. That is part of my role as an immigrant journalist. This is Created Equal. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. After a quick break, more of my conversation with Maria Inahosa. Celebrate 75 years of public radio in Detroit with WDET. As our spring fundraiser commences, let's unite to support what makes Detroit unique. 75 years of people-powered radio. 
Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. Uh, in, in the book, you spend a lot of time, of course, talking about growing up uh, on the south side of Chicago uh, as a child and as a Mexican immigrant. Uh, how did that shape your understanding of your own racial, ethnic, and American identities? Oh, my God, it had everything to do with everything about it. Like, everything. Mm. Um, I grew up um, in High Park, so some people might know it. My Again, my dad was a medical doctor dedicated to research. Um, he helped to create the cochlear implant. May he rest in peace. Um, and we were based out of High Park. And so I was crossing borders the entirety of my life. Um, we were the only Mexican kids uh, family in our public school. Wow. And they applauded us when we walked in, by the way. They were like, oh my God, Mexicans, yay! <laughs> High Park was really into having this very international and very black community. Yeah. Um, it's not perfect like any other community, but um, it was uh, very active in terms of civil rights and feminism, you know, and the Black Panthers and, you know, 1968 Chicago. And at the same time, uh, I'm sorry, the D Democratic National Convention and the protests and, you know, just growing up amidst all of that. And at the same time, going from High Park to Pilsen every weekend to go shopping in El Barrio Mexicano, mm. in the Mexican Barrio. Yeah. And then every year, Stephen, um, getting in the station wagon, loaded down with all six of us and driving through the entire central part of the United States into Mexico. I'm thinking a lot about um, as I was growing up, you know, my, my, my school, my Bret Hart was a, a predominantly black school. Mm. It was... It almost predominantly black, but very African-American. And when I went to private school at the University of Chicago High School, this was one of the uh, freakouts that I had that I'm really coming to terms with now. It's like, wow, I thought it was just a matter of class going from public school into a wealthy... No, 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 it was a question of race. Yes. I was around black people all the time, and suddenly I wasn't. What does that do? So it is... Everything about how I see myself, I guess it's no surprise that I live in Harlem, I work in Harlem, the nonprofit media company that I created is based in Harlem, and a lot of what I want to actually exalt in this book is this relationship between Black America and Latino America, specifically African Americans, Mexicans, and talking more about that. I mean, the person who made me feel the first time like I belonged in this country and maybe could be a part of it <laughs> if I had a green card was Martin Luther King. Hmm. Um, so that, that is an essential part of who I am historically in this country. And, you know, that's a, really, that's a really interesting intersection there. That, and I, I think as African Americans, we don't often think of the role that Martin Luther King or other civil rights Af activists who were African American and fighting for their own people, the effect that they had on on other people of color, for instance, or 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 just other Americans that, that oh, but huge, yes. Stephen. But and this, I think, this is actually really important, and it is important to highlight that there are many young Latinos and Latinas, or Arab American, Muslim American, however you, who have lived through, uh, the you know this 
modern iteration of the Black Lives Matter movement with their own eyes and hearts and senses. And so what are they choosing? They were, this is very important. Latino families will be choosing to stand on the side of Black Lives Mattering than not. Yes. And we have to uplift those stories because they are um, an essential part. And so I thank you for recognizing that because you're right. They're, they're really, people kind of think that it's only affecting an African-American uh, population. No, no, no. The entire country is being touched by this and changed by it. Yeah. Yeah, I want to talk about a pretty pivotal chapter in your book called Nowhere to Hide. Uh, and in that chapter, you recall two pretty horrifying events. One uh, about being sexually assaulted uh, and the other about being a victim of an armed robbery. Uh, talk about how difficult it is to write about those kinds of moments in your life and share them with, share them with the world. Uh, wow, so nobody actually asked about uh, getting jumped on the beach in Mexico on New Year's in 1970. <laughs> I guess it was, I always forget what year it was, the late 70s. Yeah, that was, okay. So, you know, when you set out to write a memoir, um, you and I are journalists, and so we deal in the truth. <laughs> it's just, you deal in the truth. And um, when I started writing, and, and you start thinking about your childhood, you know, I mean, you're having to kind of, put, you, you know, I wrote an extra 100,000 words, by the way. So just to be clear, like, I really did pour my heart out because <laughs> I was like, well, this is what you do. Um, and this whole issue around uh, being a Latina and, and relationship to sexuality, sex, romance, body, whatever, became something that I, I ended up, you know, kind of, well, I was like, well, this is kind of. And so, yeah, I did, um, you know, I was 16 years old when I was raped. Um, it was, uh, I, I had not had sex up until then. It was, it was the only time in the writing of the book when I cried. Um, and I, and I wrote about it, not because I was planning to, but actually, if you remember everything that was happening because of the nomination of then, um, uh, uh, Kavanaugh, um, now Justice Kavanaugh, um, and Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, you know, um, who had been assaulted, uh, by him in, in when she was 15, and people were like, oh, my God, no, how could you, come on, something that happens to you, come on, you're an older woman. Like, and I was like, wow, that was me. Um, and so that was the reason why I decided that um, I needed to be public about this, also because many of us women are survivors of different ways. I mean, I was raped, um, and I had to, in a process of therapy um, with my husband and my therapist, you know, just kind of have to accept that word and, and, and say that I'm a survivor. By the way, I'm doing great. <laughs> we'll be married 30 years this year, my mm. husband and I. So, oh. But it does mess with your head and your body. And so I wanted other women to know. And as you know, Stephen, because you're a public person like me, we have a capacity to talk about things because that's what we do. And I don't have shame. And I, I think it's important for us to model um, being able to talk about different things, especially as Latinas, as Mexican women, as women, as immigrants, as women of color, as survivors. So thank you for asking. I mean, the the power of claiming that for yourself, telling that story on your own terms, I think is so critical to the the outlook that you are talking about, that you have now about that. In other words, that that it doesn't, it doesn't, own you, you 
you own that. And and I think that's a really difficult turn to make, but it I mean it's it's really impressive to hear you talk about it in a way that really reflects that. Yeah, and here's the thing, because there are many survivors who are listening. Uh, you have to, if you can, do the work with a therapist. I mean, I was I would never have been able to get to the point of where I am now in terms of my sense of liberation and freedom. By the way, I became a boxer also, so I spent a lot of time hitting his face <laughs> on the bag. You know, there was definitely listening to 1970s disco music and punching his face out on the bag. But in the therapy, you know, if you have somebody who's really good, then you can, in fact, get to the point where she was like, es que mamita, you had every right to do whatever you wanted that night. You know, you had every right to be desirous of having that moment with that person. You, you, yes. But when you realized he was going to assault you, you also had the right to say no. And then he did disrespect that. And of course, that's when all the trust breaks. But that kind of sense of like, wow, wait, so I really, dude, and you know me, Stephen, I mean, I'm a smart woman, mm-hmm. you know, but it took me all of this time to just be like, no, I really did do nothing wrong. Like, really? I did nothing wrong. Right. And you're right. I flipped it now. Um, and I'm only, but it, by the way, it's coming up because I've got to send my book in Spanish to my cousins yeah. who were there, who were there and know this person. So it doesn't stop. It's not like, oh, you tell it and then you close the chapter. It's different kinds of working it through it. Um, But I really appreciate you asking about it because people think like, oh, this is a book about being an immigrant. And I'm like, "Mm, it's a book about being a woman. That was my conversation with journalist and author Maria Hinojosa. She's the author of the book, Once I Was You, a memoir of love and hate in a torn America. On the next episode of Created Equal, my conversation with psychologist Beverly Daniel Tatum, author of Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? You know, if everyone looks like you in your neighborhood, that's who your friends are going to be. If you are in a neighborhood or in a school where there's a diverse population, then there's the possibility that you may be able to make friends with people who are different from you in some significant way. Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Jake Neer, Anna Marie Seisling, and Claire Brennan. Our sound engineers are Matt Trevethan and Rowan Niamisto. Our composer and senior editor is Sam Bobian. And our social media and digital assets are done by Maida Stange and Tony Brown. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson.